where really the entire world came together, even though it was the height of the Cold War, uh, to take on eradicating smallpox. It would be wonderful to eradicate COVID-19 and it would take the same kind of international solidarity uh, and not nationalism. Hello and welcome to the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. My name is Fabiana Corsi-Mendez and I'm joined by my co-host Julia Ahn. Since it was first discovered in Wuhan in late 2019, COVID-19 has risen to become a raging pandemic with over 27 million confirmed cases around the world. Scientists, government leaders and experts all agree that a key strategy to ending the pandemic must be the development of a vaccine which has prompted laboratories, academic institutions, and pharmaceutical corporations around the world to develop vaccine candidates as quickly as possible. This rush for a vaccine raises many questions. Will a vaccine developed on an expedited timeline be safe? Who will have first access to it? Will governments carry the brunt of the price of the vaccine? Amid eroding trust in public health officials, global resistance to health recommendations, and skepticism from the medical community towards Sputnik V, the Russian vaccine candidate, there are no easy answers. To explain the international COVID-19 vaccine race, joining us today on the podcast is Dr. Chris Byrer. Dr. Chris Byrer is the Desmond M. Tutu Professor of Public Health and Human Rights at the Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He is a professor of epidemiology, international health, health behavior and society, and nursing. He has had extensive experience in conducting international collaborative research and training programs in infectious disease epidemiology, research, and in health and human rights. We hope you enjoy today's episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Byer, for coming onto the podcast today. Very happy to be here. So could you briefly outline for us and our audience the process of developing a vaccine under normal circumstances? You know, for COVID-19 in particular, how has this timeline been changed to respond to the severity of the pandemic? Well, we are on a, an unprecedented uh, accelerated timeline. There's no question about that. In general, uh, you know, vaccines take a number of years uh, to go from the earliest development phase, which is typically, you know, in the lab, uh, moving into small animals, uh, then into non-human primates. Um, very often that's uh, rhesus macaques or other uh, uh, non-human primate models. Uh, and then if there appears to be safety and immunogenicity at each of those steps along the way, eventually going into what are called phase one trials, first in human trials, which are usually um, uh, trials in healthy adult volunteers who are not at risk for the infection. Uh, so you, you, you don't want people who are likely to be exposed to whatever it is the vaccine is, is uh, being developed against. In the uh, next phase, uh, which is typically larger, so the phase ones are, are often quite small studies uh, in, in the tens to twenties or fifties uh, volunteers. Uh, in the phase two studies, we again are looking at safety. We're looking at a larger population typically, and here also looking at immunogenicity. Now with some vaccines, we have a good idea of what the immune response looks like that we're looking for. Uh, in others, we don't know. At this point with COVID-19, 
Um, we know that people who've had natural infection with the virus typically have antibody, and many of them also have cellular immune responses. But we don't really know what protective immunity to this virus looks like. And uh, so that, that does make uh, you know, understanding the immunogenicity component a challenge, although so far there have been a number of vaccine candidates now that have gotten all the way through this phase of testing and, and where we have seen at least safety in smaller numbers and immunogenicity, the best way we know how to measure it, looking at antibody responses, for example. And then uh, comes the really essential trials, uh, which are the phase three efficacy trials. So here again, you're looking at safety. Now you're looking at safety in a much larger population. So you'll be able to pick up the rare or unusual or uncommon side effects or adverse events uh, to vaccines. Uh, but you're looking now at efficacy. Does this vaccine work to either prevent infection or to reduce the severity of disease? So for, and, and in phase three trials, in contrast to the others, you want people who are gonna likely have an exposure because you wanna understand if the vaccine is protecting them. In the case of the current COVID vaccines, uh, they have mostly, most of the candidates have been through the uh, early, uh, you know, animal studies, the non-human primates. They've been through phase one testing. They've been through, many of them now have been through phase two testing, although in some cases those phase two uh, trials continue longer because we want to see uh, if there are effects at a year or two years after immunization. So some of those studies are not completed, uh, but we now are already into the era of uh, phase three trials. So the first in the U.S. with the Moderna product, which is a, um, an, a messenger RNA-based vaccine, opened in late July. Uh, the second, AstraZeneca, the so-called Oxford vaccine, opened uh, in late August, uh, it is currently on a pause because of um, a, an adverse event that may or may not be vaccine related in a trial participant in the phase two trial. So that is on hold. Uh, and then additional vaccines are about to start. So I said earlier that we were on an accelerated timeline. Uh, let me tell you where the real time saving has been with this effort. And this is, uh, has been led in, in the U.S. anyway by Operation Warp Speed, which is the entity basically that the administration created to manage these vaccines. And the, the essential time saver, the big game change in the way that we're doing these vaccines is typically you finish your phase one, phase two, and phase three trials. And then if you have what looks like a safe and effective vaccine, you begin the whole process of licensure and manufacture. In the case of the COVID vaccines, what we've done is essentially gamble on a number of products, uh, six uh, of the candidates, and say, we are going to start manufacturing capacity now doing it in parallel with the trials. And we're doing this for all of these products uh, such that if one of them actually is safe and effective, 
we will have millions of doses to go into the field right away. So that's unprecedented. And that's why uh, many people feel that we will be able to get, if we have a safe and effective vaccine, actually get it out into uh, populations in need um, so quickly. Uh, I think the scientific consensus is pretty clear that the earliest we would have a readout from these trials and be able uh, to start that, um, and I'm speaking now about the U.S. trials, uh, is probably uh, the first quarter of 2021. That sounds amazing. You know, let's say that a major pharmaceutical company secures approval for a fully tested vaccine. Mm -hmm. How might they weigh the ethical obligation to end the pandemic against uh, profit and seeking a profit margin on this vaccine? Do you foresee there being market competition and that having an effect on pricing? Well, um, here we we probably should expand our lens uh, and look a little bit more globally uh, around this. Um, there is, of course, not just the U.S. effort underway. There are um, more than 150 or 160 at this point vaccines uh, in development in various stages in multiple countries. And there is a global effort to try and address uh, just the issue you're talking about, which will be um, the, a, an ethical allocation of vaccines. Um, that is being led by a group called COVAX. Um, it is a, a coalition basically uh, created with Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, uh, the WHO, um, and CEPI, uh, which is an epidemic preparedness uh, organization. Um, but unfortunately, the U.S. is not participating uh, in that. And of course, we uh, are, have announced uh, and formally put forward our withdrawal from the WHO. That's going to take about a year, but nevertheless, we are not participating with the WHO. So right now, uh, the balance of access and profit looks different globally than it does for the U.S. In our case, uh, Operation Warp Speed has used taxpayer dollars, so that's important, uh, to support all of these companies in both the clinical trials that they are doing. Um, in most cases, we are paying for the trials. There's one exception, which is Pfizer. Uh, Pfizer also has a vaccine candidate, and in their case, they chose to, they're a very large company, uh, to do the trials under their own sponsorship. Uh, but nevertheless, we uh, uh, basically cut them a very large contract to buy uh, 100 million doses. That was uh, over a billion dollars uh, worth of vaccine if their vaccine turns out to be safe and effective. So, uh, the companies are in different places, uh, the, the, the six major ones in the U.S. Uh, two have already announced a pricing scheme. Two others uh, have talked more about making the vaccine publicly available. Um, and, uh, and both of the people running for president have said that, that um, you know, cost will not be an issue. Uh, but there isn't necessarily right now uh, the funding in place, for example, to, to uh, provide vaccine um, uh, to everyone free of charge. Uh, presumably, if we had a vaccine developed with taxpayer money, 
that would be part of the of our national debate and we certainly hope that that the congress would support that and pay for it so dr byer you talked about just now how the us will not be participating in the global push for the covid vaccine covax other than not wanting to work with the WHO, are there any other reasons behind this decision and how might this affect vaccine development and distribution in the U.S.? Well, uh, uh, you know, I think I think um, I don't have any any special ability to understand uh, where these <laughs> decisions are being made at the top. I, I think it's fair to say that this is a gamble and it's a high risk gamble. Uh, basically, what we have gambled on is that uh, at least one or maybe more of the vaccines that the U.S. is supporting the trials for and supporting the manufacture for uh, through Operation Warp Speed is going to be safe and effective. If it turns out that uh, none of those vaccines are safe and effective, and that could happen, we you know, we, you just don't know until you do the trials if a, if a product is going to work. Uh, and let's say uh, the French or the South Koreans uh, or a number of other countries that have track records in uh, vaccine development um, do end up with a safe and effective product. Uh, Americans could be left out. Uh, we could be uh, really lower priority. We might be able to use our wealth to purchase uh, large numbers of vaccines. We might rely on our allies. But basically, we have put a stake in the ground and chosen to go on our own. Um, now, of course, China is also developing vaccines and has already uh, started using a product before it had full uh, safety and efficacy, for example, immunizing its military. Uh, and of course, the Russians uh, announced uh, having developed a vaccine. They call it Sputnik V. I think the name alone tells you that this is seen as uh, a bit of a vaccine space race, if you will. Uh, who's going to get to the moon first? Who's going to put a man in space first? Who's going to develop the first COVID vaccine? Um, but that product has only been through uh, phase one, two trials. Uh, has not had an efficacy trial, uh, and, uh, and so there was very low enthusiasm, at least in the scientific community, when they announced that they already had a vaccine. Um, and uh, I think everyone who's involved in vaccine research and development would agree that that is a disaster. We cannot have vaccine nationalism. Uh, we have to let science lead here, and we have to have transparent, well-done safety and efficacy trials where the data are available uh, for independent review and we can really understand uh, how these first generation of products are going to work. That's very important because it, it may be that, that none of these early vaccines uh, are, are uh, you know, confer tremendous protection. They may confer partial protection. And if that's the case, then you really need that data to develop the next generation of, of more effective vaccines. So very quickly for our audience, can you define what you mean by vaccine nationalism? Yeah, uh, vaccine nationalism, I think, would be the idea of putting your country's interests ahead of uh, the citizens of other countries 
and taking a nationalistic approach where where getting there first, as the Russians have attempted to do, means you bypass the essential steps in evaluating a vaccine. They tried to declare that they had developed a successful vaccine uh, based on immunogenicity studies and not on a phase three uh, efficacy trial where you could really look, does this work, does it, is, does it protect? Um, that is a very dangerous approach. It's unscientific. Uh, it leads, of course, to uh, a great deal of vaccine skepticism and mistrust um, and, uh, and likely will have, a, a, unfortunately, a negative impact on the uptake of this vaccine, even if it turns out, if a trial is done, that it's safe and effective. But we just don't know that right so uh, there's also an element of this that we saw um, not just with vaccines, but with treatments, with personal protective equipment, um, with people really playing politics uh, with the resources, ventilators and others that are, that are necessary. Um, in the U.S., we ended up actually, because we didn't have a, a federal level plan, uh, with states competing for remdesivir when it was shown to be an effective uh, treatment or modestly effective treatment. States competing for PPE uh, supplies. Um, and, and of course, what we, what we want is to see cooperation, uh, you know, international uh, scientific uh, collaboration. Um, that's how we've succeeded in the past. Uh, I think probably the best example of that would be the smallpox eradication campaign where really the entire world came together, even though it was the height of the Cold War, uh, to take on eradicating smallpox with, with what was a quite effective vaccine. Uh, and that, you know, is the first disease to be eradicated uh, in modern times. Um, it would be wonderful to eradicate COVID-19, and it would take the same kind of international solidarity uh, and not nationalism. So with this all these countries trying to develop a vaccine. As you mentioned, we've seen vaccine nationalism, but also uh, this has also spurred a lot of countries to start vaccine development. So I guess as a whole, do you think this great power competition of sorts in the race for a vaccine has had a net positive or a net negative effect on an effort to produce an effective vaccine? Well, I think it's too early to say. <laughs> we just don't know uh, uh, where a vaccine is going to be effective. And right now, the, as I said, the way that, that the U.S. anyway has approached this is uh, if one of the products that we are supporting the development of turns out to be safe and effective, uh, we at least will be in pretty good shape. Um, if this generation of vaccines that we're supporting turns out not, to be safe and effective uh, and, and a vaccine is developed somewhere else, we could end up really being in a challenging place. And then I think you'd have to say that this current approach uh, has been unwise. Um, many people believe, uh, and, and I mean here immunologists, virologists, vaccinologists, people have some confidence in the ability to make vaccines against COVID-19, against SARS-CoV-2, because so many people exposed to this virus uh, manage it. Uh, more than 90% of people have uh, either a mild or an asymptomatic infection. Uh, 
it turns out now that uh, you know we we have, now that we have more testing, we appreciate that something like forty percent of people uh, who do get uh, COVID have no symptoms at all. So that tells you that the human immune system is capable of going after and and uh, and preventing disease with this uh, with this virus. But of course, not everybody has that experience. Many people get very ill, and of course, we've had coming on now more than 180,000 deaths in the U.S. alone. So, so we know that this virus is a killer, but we also know that the immune system can uh, produce a vigorous response. So, so we're more optimistic about this than, for example, um, HIV, another virus that I've worked on for many years where uh, HIV vaccines have been so challenging because you know when when somebody ha- makes antibody to HIV, that means they're infected, uh, not protected, uh, and that's the basis of well why we say that somebody is HIV positive. It's because they have a positive antibody test. Um, so that's been devilishly difficult from a scientific perspective. We don't think that that will be the case necessarily with with coronaviruses in general or with this coronavirus in particular. And the good news is that coronaviruses are very common in other species. There are coronaviruses for dogs uh, that prevent a severe diarrhea in dogs. There are coronaviruses for cats, uh, vaccines. Um, so, you know, we know that you can, you can make vaccines against coronaviruses. You know, I'm glad that you brought up Sputnik V because it's hard to look at the release of it without having wondered whether or not the Russian government could have foreseen, you know, how much skepticism there would be from the global scientific community. It's difficult to imagine how they couldn't have predicted that. That said, what might be the motivation for Russia and its government to release a vaccine so quickly and to try so hard to be the first in the world to have it? Well, I think, um, you know, uh, uh, first of all, I would say that that uh, of course this administration, the, the Putin administration, has been facing um, uh, protests, uh, has been silencing critics, has been uh, dealing with with um, increasing uh, uh, unrest among its citizens about about the authoritarian nature of the regime. So I think they are looking for a political win. I think this is a politicization. Uh, and in a country like Russia, uh, under this current administration, all these decisions go back to the Kremlin. Nobody is making this kind of an announcement without uh, Putin himself weighing in. So, so I think you have to see it in that light, that it, it is inherently a political motivation. Um, now, it turns out that it, they did publish their phase two data in The Lancet recently, um, uh, which I think was an attempt to uh, address this idea that they um, are playing politics with science. And there is, I think, a real possibility uh, of actually their engaging in an efficacy trial. Unfortunately, Russia has a very severe epidemic, uh, and so they probably have plenty of uh, people at risk and in getting infected, so they could probably do a trial just in Russia alone. Uh, and, uh, but you know, they, they do not have a scientific and transparent 
regulatory uh, authority. Uh, all regulatory uh, issues and licensure is very much controlled by the party. Um, it's very similar in that way to China. China does not have independent uh, independence of its uh, the equivalent of its Food and Drug Administration. Uh, and that's a very important thing to recognize. The entire world relies on the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for its regulatory uh, uh, acumen uh, and its uh, history of, of uh, independence. Um, so, uh, you know, all of these authoritarian regimes attempt to try and manipulate uh, the regulatory authorities. Um, it's one of the reasons why, um, you know, when was the last time you took any medication that said made in Russia? Right? And uh, it's, it's very rare. So, uh, so I, I think it's, it's fair to say that that also right now is a concern for our country, for the United States. Uh, the FDA is under tremendous pressure. Um, to do an early release, um, uh, to do what would be uh, an emergency use authorization where uh, the FDA can, uh, can allow emergency use of a product before licensure. Uh, and, you know, the, the latest evidence of the politicization of this decision is the letter uh, that was sent last week by the director of the CDC, Robert Redfield, to all 50 governors uh, telling them to prepare for uh, vaccine distribution and immunization programs starting November 1st. And November 1st is a very precarious date in the United States. It is, of course, two days before the uh, general election and probably without enough time to dial back and respond uh, if there were, for example, manipulations uh, of the science, or if we declared victory uh, before we had a full evidence of safety and efficacy. And this level of pressure is so intense that actually last Friday we learned, so this is just a few days ago, that all of the major manufacturers uh, of these vaccines that are part of the U.S. effort um, we're going to issue a joint statement about how uh, they would not uh, seek to bypass safety and efficacy data. And they went further than that and said that they also wanted trials uh, that would be inclusive uh, and that would uh, include um, uh, diverse uh, participation. And that's very important because we have a major ethnic disparity in this country. African-Americans and Latino, Latinx Americans have been more affected by COVID. Uh, and it is very important that we have diversity in the clinical trials such that we can answer the question of, uh, you know, are the communities at higher risk being protected? So as you mentioned earlier, the vaccine distribution will supposedly be prioritized for essential workers and national security personnel. Oh, sorry, and, and, and healthcare workers. And healthcare workers, right. Um, on the international level, if an American company produces an effective vaccine, do foreign relations play a role in how the vaccine might be distributed um, and which countries might be prioritized? Well, yes. I mean, I, I, I think, first of all, uh, a number of the vaccine trials are going to be international trials. 
including ones that the U.S. is paying for. So we have uh, U.S.-supported, NIH-supported vaccine trial sites in a number of countries, including South Africa, Brazil, uh, Mexico, and Peru. Uh, so, you know, the, certainly the people who participated in those trials would be among the priority uh, populations for, um, for immunization, particularly the folks who, who, if they participated in a successful trial but had gotten a placebo. Um, so those, those factors will come into play. Uh, but it certainly is the case that um, we will uh, arguably be more likely to offer vaccine uh, to our allies, uh, to the to countries that we perceive to be our friends, uh, in terms of, for example, uh, immunizing militaries, uh, you know, countries that we have security relationships with, uh, those kinds of relationships may may come into play. And uh, of course, you know, the U.S. has been an extremely generous donor uh, to the other pandemics, uh, HIV, TB, and malaria. Uh, and because of that, uh, and because of PEPFAR, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief created by George Bush and our contributions to the global fund to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria, we have infrastructure for delivery in those countries that have been a part of PEPFAR and the global fund. Those are predominantly uh, uh, allies in, in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, in Southeast Asia, um, Haiti, um, uh, and a few others. And uh, so I think uh, there is certainly some thinking that probably those countries would also be prioritized because they have generally uh, pretty low uh, standards of healthcare. The U.S. is a major donor to their health systems. Their U.S. allies, uh, and uh, and we have the people and the infrastructure on the ground to make a difference. So, given the vaccine hesitancy we've seen in the U.S. before mm. the pandemic, as well as the global mistrust and even resistance to public health officials, do you believe that the public will accept a vaccine released as early as this year? And would the same individuals who are resisting mask orders also be the very individuals who might resist a vaccine? Well, uh, there's probably some overlap there. Uh, uh, I, would, I would say this. Um, first of all, uh, vaccine hesitancy is real. We know it is. Uh, it, it predated COVID. Uh, and of course, there are um, uh, some segments of our population and of others who uh, have seen COVID itself as something like a conspiracy, uh, um, and uh, and are are not you know taking the the recommended uh, uh, public protections and social distancing as a as an act of defiance. Um, so I think you know those folks are 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 uh, definitely out there and going to be a challenge. In my view, uh, the way the best way to handle that is transparency accountability, uh, being very open uh, about maintaining scientific integrity, not politicizing decision-making. Uh, this is one of the reasons why we're so worried about the, uh, the announcement from the CDC to prepare on November 1. Uh, I shouldn't say an announcement, it was done as a letter, but um, because that is such an inherently political date. 
uh, and it has a quite arbitrary feel. Uh, you know, the head of Operation Warp Speed was on NPR very quickly thereafter saying, no, 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 we don't think it can be before uh, January of 2021. I think that if you look at the pharma announcement and their uh, vaccine maker pledge uh, that they just put out, uh, that that is a very deliberate attempt also to try and address vaccine hesitancy, to make sure that it's clear that the drug companies uh, are following the rules, uh, are working in concert with regulatory authorities, are not rushing this. Um, I think it would be potentially just catastrophic if we rushed into a vaccine in advance of the election for political reasons, uh, and then it turned out that it either wasn't safe or wasn't effective uh, because, you know, then we would uh, be, first of all, uh, using a product uh, of, of uncertain value, um, but also prioritizing that over the other vaccine trials that are still underway, which might be safer and more effective. And, and uh, you know, this, this could be for a very short-term political gain, uh, an enormously problematic uh, decision. So uh, I think protecting the scientific and regulatory authority of these vaccine trials is a paramount priority. And why do you think public trust or trust in public health officials has eroded so much during the course of the pandemic? And how will this relationship with public health officials likely change after the pandemic? Uh, well, I think, you know, there's no way to sugarcoat the reality of what has happened in our country, which is that we have still don't have a federal plan. We do not have a federal response. We chose a model of basically uh, allowing each state to try and address this epidemic on their own. That is a disastrous idea in a pandemic. It was always going to be a flawed idea that the states are not biological entities in any sense. People commute across them, drive across them, move across them constantly. I mean, this was a uh, really a disaster. And, uh, and I think that our, our failure, which is transparently obvious to us all, uh, as the rest of the world reopens and kids in Europe are going back to school and we are still having 40,000 COVID infections a day, uh, and that is thought to be an underestimate um, and have you know, lost over 180,000 uh, fellow Americans and counting. We're going to be over 200,000 relatively soon, 200,000 deaths. Um, people are right to be uh, mistrustful because we have not earned their trust. Uh, we don't have a national strategy. Uh, the, the messaging coming out of the White House has been confusing. The scientific leaders have been undermined repeatedly. Uh, we now have a new COVID advisor in the White House uh, who does not have a background in infectious diseases. Uh, the infectious disease leadership has been sidelined. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we have been uh, in, a, in a situation where there has been I think a catastrophic failure, not just of public health programming, but of public health communication. And every assessment of a pandemic response anywhere in the world will tell you that you have got to have your communication strategy clear, uh, 
uh, evidence-based, consistent, rational for people to begin to trust that, that the government is competent, knows what it's doing, and is working in everyone's best interests. Uh, that is not how we feel, and that's not what the data shows. So, Dr. Byer, just to close us out, you've described a pretty scary scenario in your last response. Given everything that we've talked about today, from the international to the domestic, in your opinion, how do we come back from what you call the catastrophic failure in our response to the pandemic thus far? How do we make things better from here if today we could change everything that we're doing? Well, so we must go forward with these vaccine trials and we must go forward uh, with scientific integrity. Uh, we cannot interrupt this effort. I, I think that given, particularly for the United States, having lost the early ground game and now having such high levels of community transmission, it will be very hard for things like contact tracing and ramping up testing and social isolation to get control of this epidemic. I think my view, we're not going to get out of it now without a vaccine. And that's why the vaccine effort is so incredibly important and we can't politicize it. We still need, however, a national strategy. We need to do way better on testing. The recent statement from the White House that asymptomatic people don't need to be tested is idiotic. Uh, and dangerous. Uh, of course, they need to be tested. We now know more than ever uh, about how much asymptomatic transmission there is. Uh, and of course, to do that, just as universities and schools were opening, uh, was also terribly irresponsible because, of course, young people are mostly going to have asymptomatic infection and need to be tested. We need a national strategy. Um, we also need, of course, in parallel to be doing better with developing treatments uh, for this infection, uh, both for people who are just ill and have not progressed to, to life-threatening uh, uh, conditions with COVID, but also for the people whose lives are really at risk. And uh, so that work has to continue. I would argue that we also need to rejoin the global effort. Uh, I think WHO, the European Union, our allies, uh, the COVAX groups uh, are, are very eager for America to uh, do what we have always done, uh, which is lead uh, with our science, uh, lead with our generosity, uh, be at the table, be a part of a multilateral response. Uh, we really need to do that. Well, thank you so, so much, Dr. Byer. I think this will leave us and the audience with plenty to think about. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> oh, not at all. I'm happy to do it. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program and the SNF Agora Institute at the Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA, that's at Hopkins P-O-F-A, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest of our content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and feel free to leave us a rating and a review. We'll see you next time.